Right, just so you know, I got beat up in Canada once for calling somebody a hoser. Good day, eh? Good day, gentlemen. Good day, and welcome to another Forge Side Chat, a podcast about blacksmithing, bladesmithing, and everything in between, with a heavy focus on talent in the Great White North. And today, we've got some beautiful stories coming at you from the Great White North. But I'm actually sitting down with two gentlemen hanging out in the uh, California region. I've got Dennis Tyrell sitting down with me today. He's going to help co-host the show. This is something new that and exciting. It's uh, off of a whim that I reached out to Dennis and he was willing to do this. But we're going to be sitting down and interviewing Brian Hinnenkamp of Tortuga Bladeworks. I'm sure you've heard of Brian before. And I'm sure you've heard of Dennis before. Both of these men are huge on the socials and the knife world we all know that you guys are producing amazing work brian's been on a couple podcasts in the past so if you want to hear about his life story and who he is and why he does what he does a lot of that information is already out there on the wfi podcast and the hustle and grind podcast and i highly suggest you guys go and check out those both those podcasts they're both amazing podcasts and uh, you, you can't get enough out of Brian Housewart and Noah Bloomberg and freaking Ryan Chadborn, all, all those guys. And then you throw in freaking uh, Brian Cohn in the mix. And now Pickle Cutters. Ah, this world's amazing. I love the community, you guys. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Brian, Dennis, how are you both doing tonight? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. You, you got me at a good time, right? Uh, just finishing up something in the shop. So uh was gluing something up. So perfect time to jump on. Nice. Nice. I, dude, this is amazing. I'm sitting down with two of like my heroes in a way when it comes to the knife world. Like you guys both are like, I, I look up to what you do. I look, I look up to a lot of the knife makers. It's not my game. And when I see the stuff you guys produce, I'm just like, yeah buddy dude dennis your samurai challenge oh dog dude that was amazing work dude amazing thank you that was a it was a fun one it was um everyone loves the uh the japanese stuff so it was uh it was a fun one yeah man yeah not just japanese though i mean you you take you add levels to it that one was on another level so I don't know how you're going to top yourself next time, but I'm excited to see it. <laughs> well, John Norwood won as the best judge, so I'm back down in the right. uh, uh, in the regular challenge, which I think a few people aren't happy about. But um, right, but uh, yeah, I've, I, Spencer from Heavy Forge asked me online yesterday or whatever what what I was going to do for the the Viking challenge. Yeah, I have I no idea. <laughs> Haven't even thought about it. He's ready for it. He's like, I'm gung ho. Oh do yeah. <laughs> That's got to be his wheelhouse with the stuff he's doing. So I'm excited to see what comes out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's got so many wheelhouses with like making his own steel. I was calling an overachiever. Yeah. Are you jumping in on any of these challenges ever, Brian? You know, I was just looking after the Samurai Challenge one. I watched all the videos. I always watch all the videos, and then after I watch them, I'm like, man, it's it just looks like so much fun, and it always gets my kind of creative juices flowing. But um I don't have a YouTube presence and that's, that's kind of one of the goals there too. And I think for me, that's, uh, I don't know. I'd rather just support some of the guys that I like to support to grow their channel. 
um, someday. I've you know I've talked about it, but um, you can always enter as a viewer. Yeah, I've thought about it. Time it's time management for me though, so yeah. I have a lot of irons in the fire, and well, I think to do it right, you got to put out some good content. And yeah. um, I go through seasons where I'm able to do that, and others where I'm not. So when it lands in the right season for me, I'll definitely jump on it. Well, two things to that. You're a very busy person, so it makes sense that you have that issue in your life with being able to find the time to make things like that work. And another thing, you brought up the fact that you don't have a huge YouTube presence right now. I actually just sat down with uh, Matt Smith of Smitty Tut the other day, and he was explaining to me that just joining the challenge as a viewer um, in the YouTube thing, it's got in him up in the levels and then placing in those competitions has it's almost like a thousand followers every time he's gone into a competition with the with the different challenges like the there was the chopper challenge that he did the samurai challenge and there was another one that he did with you as well wasn't that right dennis the fantasy one that's right thank you and he, he won first place in the first fantasy challenge that he did right I think both of them. Yeah. I think he won best chop the chopper and fantasy. And then third in the freaking yeah. katana challenge. Like I'm blown <laughs> away by that guy, to be honest. Yeah, and in fact, I think he would have done better in the samurai challenge had he been more careful with this with the the, the image. Cause like I tell everyone, like you, you get one image, and to us, when we see it, it's a little thumbnail because <laughs> it's in a voting survey. I'm like, your image has to pop. Um, so, and he had like little kind of a collage with images and images, and you, it was really dark, and you couldn't see them. Uh-huh. And I had already seen images, but we, we base it on that one image, and, yeah. and everyone votes. So, well, I know how. But, uh, yeah, his stuff's great. Judging can be difficult in that aspect when you sit down with a panel of people and you've got to look at just that specific picture and kind of go back and forth with each other over little tidbits as to what one person saw versus what another person saw, right? Yeah. So, Brian, you were mentioning that you got beat up in Canada for something. <laughs> what? what a, I got to know the story behind that. What happened, bud? Well, I mean... Take my good day at, at there. Was it a good day? I don't know. It was very Australian at the opening of the show because I just can't do accents. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> when I was uh, much, much younger, I've always lived in Washington State. But back in the day, uh, we would go up to Canada because the drinking age was lower. And uh, so I was just out of high school, went up there with some buddies, and uh, we went to a bar. I know this became relevant, more relevant in recent years, too. I don't know if you have children but i've got two boys and a girl and uh I'm trying to explain to my boys you know how to handle themselves in the world uh, mm-hmm. i brought my, my life experience to hopefully they can learn from my mistakes and uh that was a particular one where all of the, all of the clues were there so i was in a, a bar i probably shouldn't have been in and there was a guy that came in and best of what i could describe would be he was still wearing his hockey shorts and his socks. Like he came from practice. It's like he took his skates off and whatever he had on top and Wait, walked straight in. The bar. He took his skates off? What the fuck? Yeah. So he had <laughs> some kind of shoe. adrenaline. <laughs> right. Right. So, and I was 19 and, you know, drunk in a bar and, and I yelled over to him, hey, hoser, look at that hoser. 
I'd seen, you know, uh, Strange Brew growing up, and so it was, it was part of my my childhood. I thought I was being funny, and he, he didn't take it that way. And uh, like I said, though, all the context clues were there. This guy's, uh, he's still wearing his hockey outfit. He was missing teeth. And, uh, and, and explaining this to my boys, you know, I'm like, beware of your surroundings. If somebody's missing teeth, they look like they want to fight you and they're smiling. If you're in Canada, they're probably good at it. If you're in, <laughs> if you're in you know, suburban Seattle, you're probably okay. You could probably, <laughs> you know, against the same guy. It might be a meth situation. But, uh, so, yeah, context clues are important. If the guy's got cauliflower ear... And he's smiling at you. He's probably good at that. So. Yeah, it's like that's a key sense there, right? Yeah, I, the hockey so. equipment might have been a bit of uh, something that you could have picked up on there too, right? Yeah, yeah, it was all there. But I was young and I thought I was tough, and he taught me otherwise. And he was actually pretty cool afterwards too. And uh, we had a beer together. But yeah, he worked me over, and <laughs> it was it was very quick. That's, that sounds uh, like a very Canadian interaction. Have a fight after you're done. Say sorry. Go inside. Have a beer together. Next thing you know, you're best friends. Right, and that's how the rest of the night went. Uh, it was equally confusing the rest of the night as that that first uh, introduction. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's just a, needed to teach a quick lesson, eh? That's right. Yeah, and I and I've taught my children that. So I mean, he was he was. Who's passing on things to the next generation that were valuable? Yeah, no, it's it's kind of interesting how you're bringing that up. That you portray your mistakes to your children and hoping that they will learn from those mistakes and be able to go forward and be a better person. And in the world that we're in today, there's there's been a lot of talk about like, oh, well, things are the way they are because it was so easy. You know, we didn't have our parents that went through all of the mistakes because they had an easy life, you know, growing up in the, in the seventies, the eighties, the nineties, it was pretty simple compared to growing up in like the thirties and the forties, for example, right? So as we're going forward now, we're finding that, you know, there's, there's all these people that are making these mistakes that they could have, you know, our older generation, our grandparents are looking at us like, going like, what the hell you guys, what are you doing? And it's all just didn't get passed on to us through that simple generation gap of you guys had it easy. Now we've got it hard because we've got it hard. We'll make it easy for our kids eventually. Right. Right. How, how old are your kids, Brian? Uh, my oldest is uh, 20. He's off at college. My middle son's uh, 18, and then my daughter is 15. Okay. We're exactly the same. My oldest is 20. My my youngest is 18. Both yeah. boys. You know, so I can I, relate. <laughs> and I think, I think every generation answers that or speaks to those things differently. Um, and I, I spoke to him differently when I was younger, and I speak to him differently now. And I'm someday when I'm older and wiser, I think I will too, but... I was talking to a guy last week who was talking about what normal is. He was talking about COVID and pre-COVID and when's it going to return to normal. And we were kind of talking about that idea of what is normal. And I don't, I don't know that the world's ever been normal. If you look yeah. at past generations and um, when I talked to my grandfather, when I talked to my dad, I think they all thought it was mess, as messed up as it could be. Yeah. And uh, 
I definitely think it's weirder than it has ever been now. Um, you know, the, the culture changes and the things we normalize get pretty bizarre and they always change. But for me, I always look at, I don't know, it, the context changes. So I became a parent and then it became a, how do I parent this situation versus, you know, what do I make of this situation for myself? So it's, it's more of a view as a parent. And I think parents just try to do the best they can. And uh, I think that's how I view my dad now too. I think he isn't the superhero I thought he was. He's also not the asshole I thought he was. He's a guy that did the best he could. And, uh, and I, and I think I'm doing the same thing. And I'm also understanding the impact of those choices. So my generation, we heard no, we heard, um, I, my, you know, I brought home a school supply list. That's my example I always give. And, uh, I handed it to my parents and I, you gotta have pens and pencils and erasers. And there were times where I went without cause we didn't have the money. And so I said, I'm never going to have, you know, that for my kids. So my kids bring home their school list and I give them, you know, we, they go to school with everything on that list. I think somewhere I wanted to be providing for it. I think somewhere along the lines, it wired them to believe that because of who they were, the world is going to provide everything they need and it will just magically show up. And so there's a sense of entitlement in the generations now. And I think that carries over into the culture of how we're, we normalize a lot of these things. And, um, and now I'm looking at it with older kids going, how do I put the reins on that? And, uh, yeah, yeah buddy. there's something to be said for struggle. Uh, struggle builds character. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's exactly, exactly what I'm talking about, man. You guys are nailing it on the head, left, right, and center with everything you said there, man. Like, wow, dude. I, I, okay. How old are you? If you don't mind me asking, Brian. I'm 45. And Dennis, you are in your 50s, right? Just turned 53 last month. Right. Okay. So I'm 42 right away. So Brian and I were pretty close. Dennis, you got a little bit little bit on me. Not much, but there's a little bit there. That, te- that 10 years is enough, though, that you've seen a lot more than I've ever seen, man. And, you know, in 10 years, is you can soak up a lot of stuff dude you can see a lot of changes in this world in 10 years when it comes to your guys's kids i mean so your kids are 20 so you would have been 30 when you had your kids brian you would have been in your early 20s when you had your kids going into your late 30s what what was life like Brian, I'll start with you. What was life for you like for you when you had your kids? Were you already deep into your current life of working in the ER and stuff? Were you a maker of any any style at that point? Um, yeah, that's. I think it's probably similar to to a lot of people that end up doing the things we do. I've always been an artist, always been a maker. Um, uh, professional career though, and like finishing school and my trajectory there, I just hadn't settled uh, or maybe I just hadn't grown up yet. Uh, we started having kids. So I was still working. I had other jobs, you know, working at Home Depot and, um, I often on was going back to school. And then at one point I, um, I went into a, a kind of an intensive training program and I became a custom guitar builder. Um, right. so for, for about 10 years there, while my kids were growing up, custom guitar builders build custom guitars, but you pay the bills by doing repairs mostly. And so 
I was able to work out of the home. It worked well for us. My, my wife is in um, IT. She's been at Microsoft for years. And uh, wow. so I was able to, we were really blessed from that standpoint where we never had to do daycare or things for our kids because I always had a home business or, um, or when I was back in school finishing, you know, a healthcare degree, for sure. I was taking care of the kids. So, so that, it just kind of lined up that way for us. But I think that's also just, I think the, the point where I kind of turned the corner in life growing up, uh, you know, becoming, um, I don't know, finding my purpose there. And maybe it was a little bit later where I really finally settled and said, I'm going to, Early on, I was a firefighter and I tried a lot of other things. So I think I was just really searching until my, you know, early 20s. And um, thankfully, I just, that's kind of the situation I had where I was able to explore that um, and figure it out. And uh, yeah, so. Do you think your you kids know. had a lot to do with the switch? The The kids had a lot to do with my final decision. So at the point, um we, the kids were all really, really young. And I, um, I hit a place kind of in studying where I realized I'm really good at this. I'm also, I just have an aptitude and intellect for this. And I thought I'm going to go to medical school. And I was, I wanted to go be a doctor. That was the, what I decided. And then we really had to look at life, but we had to look at life and go, okay, realistically, what does that look like? How many X number of years in school left? And there's residency, there's a lot of things. And I, we're, we're a very tight family and living in Seattle, it's kind of just the Seattle ways. Everybody's in a hurry everywhere. And then on the weekends we huddle and we, we spend family time and we, that's when we try to recoup. And I was looking at that going, my kids are going to be in high school while I would be in a, a residency. And I just want to be a present dad. I want to be a present husband. And um, so that ultimately uh, this is kind of where I changed my focus. I went into nursing and it's a shorter timeline. It really came down to that. I was able to, to serve the community and do the things that I felt were kind of my purpose, uh, you know, that I was driving towards, but collapsed the timeline and I could still be the dad and the husband I want to be. So ended up being the right decision. So well, that's, there's a there's a bit of beauty hidden in in, in that man, uh, and I'll reference Brian House when it comes to this one because he was just bringing it up recently on Facebook and his podcast. He was talking about some Japanese um, culture ideas, and one of them being finding your purpose and doing and doing in this world what you're good at, so that you can help this world, and by helping this world you help yourself you solidify yourself as a person you find out who you are as a person you grow as a person you make this world a better place you make yourself a better person and it's it's all it's all a cumulative process that uh, kind of works off of itself there yep do you follow stoicism at all no i don't but i i know i listened to that the stuff that um, brian was talking about last week and i was actually walking out into work that morning, listening to that, I was, there's a place where I have to park and walk in. It takes about 10 minutes to get in. And we had that particular morning, we had a, a pediatric patient die. And so I knew I was walking into a really tough situation. And the, I agreed with every single thing he was saying. But in that moment, I was thinking about that. I was reflecting on that going, I love what I do. I'm walking into my purpose. And right now my purpose sucks. 
And <laughs> what I would add to that to that thing is it's not always easy. Even if you check all those boxes, uh, you might be exactly where you're supposed to be, and it's hard. Mm-hmm. And uh, but that, yeah, you know what? Those words that morning gave me a lot of strength to to go in and kind of lead a lot of my people that were in a really tough place that morning. So that's awesome. Yeah, that was really relevant for me. Yeah. I think that uh, falls into the category of another one of Brian saying, hard work, good luck. That's got to be tough going in. Any, anything pediatric related has got to be a, a tough, tough situation. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. It's backwards, and those are always the toughest ones. Yeah, I can't imagine working in an ER whatsoever dude some of the things you've probably encountered in your life are just mind altering just to witness it let alone be a part of it um and and working with those people it's i mean my my heart goes out to you in so many ways because thankful that there's people like you that do this work because without people like you doing that work where were where would our world be right so thank you very much um and and my heart also goes out to you because i know it's a difficult very difficult job and uh probably takes its tolls on you on occasion yeah it does um <laughs> i think we're all wired different ways though too and i th- i think if you're wired right for what you do it's surprising what we can get used to in that environment um mm-hmm and what what I can get used to and come out of there healthy. Um, but I equally look at someone like a teacher. Uh, if, if you put me in a classroom, I probably wouldn't come out of that situation healthy or sane. Um, so I, I look at other people that do things where they care for others or lead others, or it seems so similar to me than so many other things. Uh, and I just happen to be wired for that environment. I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I'm not... I don't know. I don't have an excessively dark sense of humor, although we develop one in the ER, but mm-hmm. um, I think I just have the right personality to care for the people in this environment and, uh, and then walk out of it without being too, you know, beat up by it. And, but I couldn't do it in other situations. Like I, I always use teachers as the example. I could not be a teacher uh, and they just have so much respect for me. So I can teach adults and teaching kids. That's a whole different thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's some adults that fall into the category of kids. You'd have a hard, you'd have a hard time dealing with me, Dennis. I guarantee you. <laughs> Are you a problem child? <laughs> well, yeah. You could say that again. And oh. Speaking about the children, Dennis, you had your children when you were in your 30s, um, based off of the age age categories that were going on here. When you started having your children, were you already in the maker world at all? No? Not at all. So my trajectory was a little different. Uh went through a really nasty divorce in uh, 2017, 2018. Um, and then met an amazing woman after that and which allowed me to you know explore some of the things that i was interested in that i just never did Seriously. before yeah. uh so in 20, 2018 is when um i really started in um 
in making. That's that's when I started, right? 20, 2018, it barely started, sorry. It was probably more like uh, latter half of 2019 is uh, when I actually started making knives and had never done anything with metalwork before that. Hmm. And then started the YouTube channel in 2020. So most of 20, you know, three quarters of 20, whatever, whatever something like that. And sometime in 2019. Um, Dude, there's some amazing trajectory there on your behalf. Wow. I don't understand how you go from no making to that. Uh, right, right. <laughs> Like Brian, I, I, I don't put my toe in the water. I dive right in, no matter what I'm doing. So that's. I mean, I grew. That's I grew up around tools. I, right. There was a lot there that was formative for me. But yeah, yeah, and that's why I mean, I'm, I'm asking that. Sorry. Like I'm a handy guy. Like I I built the bar in our like our outdoor kitchen. Like and then you know if I if I need to know something like oh I'm gonna do masonry because I'm gonna put stone around the bar like I can do it. It's just a matter of learning it and, you know, the whole trial and error. I'm not afraid of tools. It's just I've never done anything with metal work. So, like, watching Forge and Fire, thinking that was cool, something fun to do with my son, get him off the video games, and then it was just, you know, Did you say zero tools? Bit. Tools? <laughs> tools? Oh, tools. Tell me about your tools. I mean, tools. Tools. I want to know about your tools. Brian. Dude, uh, we've talked to Dennis before. We know his repertoire of you know in his shop. What are you rocking, Brian? What do you got? Yeah, I've had uh, whew, it's <laughs> it's come from a tent on my back porch, you know, with uh, very rudimentary things. To I live so I live in a, a country club community. It was built in 1969, so we've got some pretty strict CCNRs. Um, the, the people that originally wrote them still live in my community. So the rules around what we can and can't do here are crazy. Um, so long story short there, I, I proposed building a shop, trying to get all the hot work out of my garage. And uh, I had a huge shop planned and they shot it down. Um, so I have a, a very tiny footprint, similar to, I don't know if you saw uh, Nick Tobin's old shop. We, we oh, yeah. had the exact same footage before he did his expansion. So we were always kind of comparing what we were doing to space safe um and that's what you're working on still still it's it's all i can do um so yeah i've got my shop is about 10 by 10 and uh, i had to build a patio with an awning and i i get really creative with all the um tools so but you know i've got um i i so i wheel my forge out onto the the patio regardless of the time of year it's covered and protected um, so right now I'm running, uh, I, I have the new Apollo forge from Brian house, which I'm loving. Bow, 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 bow. Um, yeah. I've gone through a number of other forges. Um, I do a lot of stainless sand mice, so I'm, I'm pretty hard on, you know, my forges there. It's just from hitting them with a lot of heat. This has been the best forge ever for me, conserving gas and, um, you know, quickly getting up to forge temps. And then, um, I've got it on a rolling stand, so everything's mobile. Yeah, I can take it in and out. Um, I'm doing. I have a 12, 12 ton coal iron press that was uh, addition a couple of years ago. I think I'm gonna uh, have to hit up Brian for a sponsorship here, man. We've been bringing up the Apollo Forge like every episode. It's good. It's very good. I've Sorry. got. I, I love that thing. So especially some of the ones I've come through that have been featured on 
other shows that no one should ever use. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not dropping any names, eh? Uh, So so your neighborhood doesn't have any problem with you, like, beating on steel and using a press? I'm surprised there's no noise ordinance. So they do. I I live so right next to the elementary school, so there's always a lot of noise there anyways, except in the summer. And then the, our closest neighbors, uh, they happen to love what I do. And um, so all I do is kick a project their way every now and then. I also, I'm really passionate about pizza. I make Neapolitan pizza. So I always throw pizzas over the fence at them just to kind of butter them up when I'm going to get noisy. And uh, so, yeah, it's, I mean, they're very, very supportive of it. Um, I usually give them a heads up, though, um, if I'm going to be doing a big batch of something that's making a lot of noise. Um, yeah. Yeah. Brian, Brian Cohn. Sorry, Brian Cohn had a, had a good idea when uh, you offered to sharpen their knives, and uh, that'll do it. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a good idea for sure. It's never a bad idea to offer a, a sharpening service to your direct neighbors if that's what you do, and even just building a relationship with your neighbors through doing that can be very worthwhile because you never know what one of your neighbors does for a living. There could be an HVAC guy that eventually you're going to get to be buddies with or a a plumber that you're going to get to, or maybe there's a guy down the street that has a Bobcat and that, that day that you bring home that power hammer. Oh, Hey buddy with a Bobcat can help me move it. Right. Uh, yep. Speaking of power hammers, you obviously aren't going to be running a power hammer in that shop, and that's why you went with the coal iron twelve ton press. Right? Are you pretty satisfied with twelve tons? Do you want more? Where are you at with that? Yeah, it's a good question. That's something I'm wrestling a lot with. Um, I, I recently got to forge on a Clark Iron forge or press that had a little bit more oomph to it, and. Um, I liked it. And so I've seen a lot of folks, the 12 ton press is awesome because the footprint is so small. Yeah, um, It's so well built. And uh, if you saw in my shop where I have it, so in this little space, I have some work, work tables because I like to spread things out and stage things. I've got, uh, I have my Broadback grinder with all the attachments. I, um, you know, thankfully I'm just blessed with an incredible wife that's always supported every addiction of mine. Uh, so she let me buy the, you know, the super grinder package a couple of years ago. From Maritime Knife um, Supply? I think I just got it direct from Broadbeck. But it was, you know, it was the, it was the everything package, which in a small shop and every little attachment's got a, a place to hang. Um, so that, and then I've got, you know, another corner where I have a drill press and I've got the, you know, that the 12 ton. What I've thought about doing, I've seen some guys that have upgraded the RAM on the 12 ton. Uh-huh. To, because I I don't know that the twelve ton actually gives you a full twelve ton of of squish, so putting oh, a bigger ram, yeah, people are pushing it a little bit more. So, well, if I think you put I made bigger ram that, on it, it's gonna run a bit slower, right? I don't know. I, I haven't spent a ton of time looking at it. Dennis might know a little better. Yeah, it, 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 from the ground it, up. Yeah, it's it it'll run slower because you're gonna you got more volume in the cylinder, but it it depends. It might not be noticeable. It depends how big the motor is on it and how big the pump is. Yeah, the pump. Yeah, the pump plays a lot to do with that. Yeah, from a tooling standpoint, though, I'm I really uh, so I'm I'm a person that's always thrown myself into my hobbies. I kind of obsess over it and I overstudy and I you know with uh, knife making is no different. But the thing that I've really put the reins on 
once I started a business on it was to say my big purchases are going to support where I'm actually at as a business. Um, so my next thing really just needs to improve the product I'm putting out, the volume, the speed. Um, so I look at my growth and what are my goals and that's how I'm making the decisions now. So yeah. like a power hammer, that's a nice to have. I would love to have one. I've, I've come up with so many weird configurations of how I could create a tiny power hammer in this little shop. Um, but ultimately I come back to you and I go, what am I making? What are my customers asking for? That's what my tooling is set up for. Um, and so I'm, I, in, in seasons, really, it's how I look at it is this season I'm focusing on this and that's what you're going to see come out of my shop. Um, and I, I tend to try to stay connected with what are my customers asking for and what am I trying to learn? Um, cause that's a delicate balance for me with time management is so how do I stretch <laughs> myself? What's your next tool? If you, if you had a choice, what would be the next one? Um, I'm waffling a little bit. So I've got, you know, I have the disc grinder attachment for my Broadback, but I would love a stationary disc grinder or some other things. Um, I'm looking yep. more at, I just, my most recent one was my, I upgraded my even heat uh, to the LB27, um, which is not in my shop now. Yeah. So I have that in a separate, that's in my garage actually, because it's so big. Um, so now I'm going to have to kind of split shop space and put another anvil in there. Um, next big, next big purchase though. That's a tough one because I, what I'm really looking at now are maybe some other welding setups um, to expand my capacity there. Um, what do you have for a welder? Yeah. Well? Uh, well, I'm running a, a Lincoln Electric MIG weld, but I want to play with stick welding. I want to get an oxyacetylene setup. Um, I'm also, most of the knives I make are hidden tang and I'm, and I'm looking at um, kind of my journey Smith trajectory and I got to start getting into those hidden tangs, mm -hmm. which there's a lot of different, maybe not necessarily tooling, but I'll have to kind of switch my focus on the way I have things set up. And um, yeah, so that's kind of what I'm looking at now. So if you're going to do your journeyman, do you have a master Smith you, you that's close to you or? Yeah. David Lish lives. Oh, okay half an hour south of me so um, nice. that's a master yeah. of a master right there pretty good so i talked to jason knight about it too because I've, I've spent some time with him back in tennessee but it's a little bit easier just for me to drive down and see J uh, you know david and have him look at stuff yeah. oh yeah plus you're, you're going to want to have at least two or three interactions with your master smith while you're going through js so yeah so that's good wait, wait when can you when can you test um i can test next year so, oh, well, I think technically I could test this, this fall would be my, my time window. Yeah. This fall, what do you mean this fall? This, when I, when I became a ABS. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. So are you going to test next year? It's, it comes down to timing. So I've been trying to look at it and go, am I going to be able to get a journey Smith set together in time for Atlanta next year? That's what I'd love to do. Um, I just don't know. So, How does that work? Well, I, you have to line up a, a journeyman to be at Atlanta for you during the testing, and you have to set up that yourself, or? Well, there's no, a couple, couple stages to the testing. Dennis just did it. He could probably. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's the performance test that you have to do kind of on your own, like as in with a master smith, okay. and then past that, 
that's the bend you've probably seen it the cut rope cut the bend the the chop right once you do that then most people do that first and then you have to make your five knives and present them like obviously you you write out your intent to test um at in june and there's always in a master smith like a lot of people test it at blade so there's you just basically sign up to say you're you're planning on testing you bring your five knives hopefully six <laughs> um why do you and, say hopefully uh, six just it's always a good idea to have six um either bef- right before you get your master smith to pick the top five i would still bring six just in case something happens in transit which has happened to some people. Yep. Um, but uh, yeah, that that'd be cool. Um, there'll be I know Tony Tony Severio is going to be testing in June. Uh, I know a few guys that'll be testing in June. Yeah, I've been I've been debating a ton because I think what you see is a lot of folks do their bend test and they kind of get it out of the way, and then all they got to focus on is making those knives that you know the presentation set. But um, I've made a lot of times I'll go out and just forge something out and, you know, blue back the spine and go through the process. So I'm not, I'm not as worried about that piece. It's more about timing and getting through. I'm, I'm looking at how do I figure out the timeline to get the knives done and then keep them perfect. Um, Cause I'm going to have to stretch out that build timeline a little bit um, just the way life works. And then, I mean, you tested it blade Atlanta <laughs> with the biggest group ever um, that just sounds awful to me. It's terrifying. And if, so I keep looking at like Blade Show West or Texas. Like You can't test either of those. Oh, you can't? Okay. No. Well, there you go. <laughs> you, can, you now can test at the Hammer Inn in, uh, in Ohio, All right, which well, is brand new. The ABS Hammer Inn in Ohio, which is in the fall. Is that part of the new, new rule changes that just happened? Uh, well, it was announced last year, but these rule changes are, are also new, brand new. That's not um, SOFA that you're talking about. That's a different event. Um, so- I don't remember what it's called. Southern Ohio. Um, no, the, this is an ABS event. Okay, like yeah, it's a okay. new ABS event that just started last year, the year before. Definitely not what I'm talking. And now there's enough master smiths that I don't know why they don't test in Texas. There are plenty of masters that go to Texas. Yeah. And in fact, that's what I tell people. Like you, the year you're going to test it's a smart idea to plan to go to blade Texas to show some blades. Yeah. It's kind of what I wanted. I, Cause I've also been debating, um, doing a table or joint table with somebody for me, that's a ways off just because the way that I build my customers snap, everything I build as, as soon as I make it. So having an inventory to have a table anywhere is challenging for me. Um, something I want to build towards, but yeah, well, you have to have a table to test. Yeah. <laughs> is that how that works you have to be a uh, yeah, yeah. exhibitor to test okay yeah yeah you can share a table it's the only time at blade you're allowed to share a table and i I've, I've said that i don't want when i test to be the first time i have a table too there's just too many elements to be adding to the <laughs> the stress of the event but wait, have you been to blade atlanta uh not atlanta and i haven't been to blade in years actually i haven't been to blade since before I was a maker, I used to go as just a knife enthusiast years ago. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. So you were that that was kind of your intro into this game is you were a knife enthusiast before you started making. 
Yeah, I, uh, you know, I grew up east side of Washington State. I was Boy Scouts. We were a camping family. That was vacation for us. I, I grew up always having a knife on me. Um, I was really into Native American, you know, art and history. And uh, I started trying to make knives when I was oh, 12 or 13 from a book I got at the library. And, uh, and then when I was in high school, crazy enough, you could make knives in high school metal shop back in the 90s. So I had, you know, I had a metal shop teacher that let me make a hunting knife at school. And so, and that's, that's how I grew up. My parents, they supported anything we threw ourselves into. So I was always making weapons out of things in my dad's garage. And so it kind of stuck around. And then what what is it with boys always wanted to make weapons? I (laughs) I was the same (laughs) bow and arrow or something like that. Oh, bow and arrows for sure. Slingshots. Yeah, yep. definitely. Spears. I have lots of spears as a kid. Can't get enough of those. Um, so it, it sounds like that you're a little on edge about doing this um, journeyman testing. Is there a detrimental effect if you do the testing and fail? Mm. It's a mental, <laughs> I think it's a mental effect. <laughs> my, my, uh, yeah. my hesitation with it is just, if you look at my body of blade, blade work, it, uh, everybody starts different places. And I've always, for whatever reason, have focused heavily on hidden or on uh, pull tang knives. So to do really the ABS style, I need to transition and do hidden tangs years and years ago when I, the first knives I ever made were all hidden tang. And, um, that's happens to be the library book I was reading when I <laughs> figured out how to, you know, construct them. Um, I just haven't found my way back there. Part of that's due to just business. Um, I make a knife, people want it. And then you're stuck making that style for uh-huh. a bit. Dude. trying to carve, out, trying to carve out that space to go, all right, I still want to produce the things, I, you know, I have people waiting on, on blades. I'm not taking custom orders. I don't have a big backlog, but I have people waiting on knives. So when I drop something, it, that's a great problem to have. They yeah. sell immediately. Um, but I'm always looking for that, you know, that period of time where I can work on my growth. Um, that's tough as, yeah. you know, as a maker and um, having people that are enthusiastic about what you're doing and, I feel loyal to them because they're loyal to me. And um, so the next guy that texts me and says, Hey, can you make me this? It's not a hidden tang. It's a, a lot of times it's a stainless stand, sand, my whole <laughs> thing knife with it's, they order what you put out. So until I start putting yeah. out, you know, those knives that look like the, you know, the, the ABS uh, format knives, and I won't be able to get to spend a lot of my time practicing those. Right. And that, that's the tough part about testing for journeymen is it really is, depending on who you are, two to four, five, even six months of like, you're just making those five knives and you got to make, I, I hate making monoskill knives. Um, like I would much prefer to be doing sand mice or Damascus or something like that. To, so to make five knives that I'm not really thrilled about making, and I know they're going to take five times longer than any other knife which takes away from everything else you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Like it's a big demand. Yeah. 
And does well, doing it's... the journeyman testing cost you anything? No. Okay. Well, at least yeah. there's not a cost that you have to put into it. So if you decide that, you know, you go partway into it and you decide that you're going to back out, at least you're not out a bunch of money, right? Yeah. You, it costs your annual dues to the ABS. And um, what's the per, annual dues? Free, like 60 bucks. Okay. Yeah. Cool. For me, though, in my. My building, like a lot of makers, we have kind of seasonality. Like a lot of people are ramping up for Christmas right now. My productive season is very different. Uh, summertime is actually, I'm uh, quite a bit more productive because uh, November through February is the sick respiratory season. And that's when I live at work, you know, so we get overwhelmed. And so I don't really do a Christmas rush. You see me, my social media kind of drops. Come spring, uh, it's kind of that pattern. You know, my son Taylor comes home from school for a summer break and he wants to be in the shop. And so then we have this big kind of like artistic just release where we're making a bunch of stuff. And um, I love it. It's awesome. Our summers are productive. We, we, we spend, we're outside together all summer. And then, but it's exactly the opposite of kind of the rest of the, the knife making market. So, and I have other other things I want to be doing. I want to learn how to make hammers, and I want to, you know, I want to be forging some swords. And um, a lot of that doesn't fit into these these things that you know timelines. Well, I picked up a, a, a little something there that with that little tidbit is that maybe you're in a better position to not worry about the Christmas rush like a lot of other makers, and that you get to play the game the way you get to do it. Because you come off of being this extremely busy person and you you need that outlet in a sense, right? Like you need to find something that will bring you back to, to ground zero and help you be who you are and that outlet for your artistic abilities. So it's like, oh, finally, let's do this. Whereas with a Christmas rush, a lot of the times it's like, oh, great. Here comes the Christmas rush. I got to... I got to buck down because now's my time to monopolize on what's about to happen. Right. Where you, if you don't have to worry about that, I feel like that could be a, a huge weight off of your shoulders, which leads to more artistic freedom as well. Yeah, no, that's really true. And I, I've gone through periods of time where I, I, you know, I dream about, uh, oh, you know, full time. Could I do this full time? And, yeah, you you can't. Very few people can make knives and make what I make at my in my career, and right. uh, I'm thankful for that. And uh, also, you know what I do in healthcare. That's the nice thing of health about healthcare. If if you ever don't like what you're doing, you can do something else. It's massive, right? And, True. Uh, you know, and the field I'm in, and being in leadership, there, there's a lot I can do in healthcare. But it really is. It really has become. Um, there's nothing like leaving the trauma center after a terrible week and coming home and smashing on hot steel. I mean, it's, mm. that is my, that is my church right there. And, uh, <laughs> I figure, I figure a lot of problems out in front of the anvil and, um, but yeah, the, you're right. I don't have the pressure of that, but I also, I mean, evidenced by my, my work is I, you know, I serve our community and I care for people in healthcare I feel the same way about my customers. So I have, I have a lot of supporters that are loyal and they want my work. And so that I stress about 
how do I get enough of it out there? I want all of them to have what they want. Um, and so that's what I think about when I, um, I'll tell you, I, I, a couple of years back, I, I flew back East and spent a, a few days with Jason Knight, me and Taylor, my, my son, we made some choppers and picked his brain on everything I could. And one of the things we talked about over lunch one day was just taking custom orders. And he said, don't take custom orders, just make what you want to make grow and learn, protect that time, enjoy it. And then I flew home and I promptly filled my books with orders. And, and then it took me a year and a half to dig out and I made some great things that I'm really proud of. And I, I have some great relationships with some of those, you know, you know, I don't want to alienate any of my customers, but I was stuck to that. And there were times where I was really unhappy making the same knife over and over. And, and I echo back to that, go back to that conversation where I'm like, I listened to every word he said, and I wrote it down that I did the opposite. And yeah, you felt it. You, you got, you got to, you, sometimes you, you need to learn for yourself, right? Yeah. yeah. It doesn't matter how old you are. Sometimes that little kid inside you says, Oh yeah. Hold my beer. Let me find out for myself. Yeah. And then it's a really humbling thing for me to have customers that stand by you while you figure it out um, because they believe in what you're doing and they connect to it and they're excited about it. And um, that's awesome. I've, I've got some of those, you know, and so that is a great problem to have. Whatever I drop, if I had 10 knives to drop today, they would all sell. And that's great, dude. And I know there's a lot of people that don't have that. And so I don't take that for granted for a second, but I do feel the pressure of, man, I want those people to get, you know, some of my work. And, uh, and then there's the pressure we put on ourselves. Like I could mass produce stuff. Um, and I've looked at water jetting and I've played with a lot of that. I've been doing some of those things, but then there's, there's a moment there too, where I'm like, eh, it's, it's, it's not my, you know, it's not my everything. So. Well, yeah. you mentioned the custom order thing being a little bit um, not not where the game wants to be for you. And I totally get that. But on another side of things, one of the things that I've kind of picked up from you with the custom orders is that there's a part of you that does enjoy the custom orders. And I think if I was to read into that properly, what you're getting out of the custom orders is somebody pushing you in a direction that you normally wouldn't go towards it. Uh, something, yeah. something, yeah, you get those custom orders and sometimes they ask you for something that's like, I would have never thought about doing that. Let's, let's try. Yeah. Right. Yep. That's, that's very true. And it comes from different places. Sometimes it comes from the order. Sometimes the pressure comes from another maker who looks at what I'm doing and says, why don't you do it this way? Or, And I've, I've kind of trained myself to listen to those voices rather than get very tunnel vision on what I, what I'm doing. Right. Cause I look, I always go back to some of the first knives I ever made where I spent just hours and hours on them. And then I look at them and they're just absolute turd. <laughs> um, we all have those, <laughs> but I was so, I was so tunnel vision on that thing going, Hey, isn't this awesome? That I was actually blinded how awesome it was not. It was not awesome. And uh, so I love, yeah, my customers push me to funny places. Sometimes it's absolutely absurd. Um, I love that challenge. That's why I appreciate a lot of the voices. I hear that a lot on all the podcasts I listen to. It's just, 
the reality of grounding, you know, grounding your customers and standing, here's my style. Here's what I can do. Here's what I can't do. Um, yeah. But yeah, I love, I love the people that push me to new places. I love the creative process with customers too. And I'm, so I'm always, I've always been that way. I, I'm not that builder that can say, okay, here's your order. Now leave me alone. I'll let you know when it's done. I always let you be a part of the process for better or worse. Sometimes that is, that's a huge pain. Mm-hmm. Um, you get those sub customers can just fuck right off. <laughs> but that's my way. And I, and I love them being part of this thing we create together and they're proud of it. And they feel like that, you know, um, and then I hear other makers that say, no, this is what I do. And I listen to that and go, man, that sounds nice. There's pros and cons to both, right? Like sometimes it's nice to have the occasional custom order that you wouldn't normally have done. Uh, yeah. And then there's like, I don't know. I think, I think it'd be, you know, I, I'm thinking of going full time next year. And then I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about percentages, like yeah. how much percentage of my time is going to go to custom orders. So, so, so much is going to go to videos for YouTube, which always have to be new and just figuring out what that balance is. And of course it'll probably change over time, but of course, yeah. it will include custom orders, but very choice select ones. Yeah. I think that's, that's the key. way. Yeah. Very key. That's, I think you're nailing it right there, dude. And you brought up something earlier too about being very selective about what you make yourself too. And I was actually talking to Nick Tobin about this earlier today and I was explaining to him, like, I got to a point where it's like, maybe I don't want to make hammers. Like I, I look at the guys that are making hammers. It's the same bloody process over and over again you know um who is it uh gnome hammer forge that's working i think that's who it is that's working with um brian now right brian house he's making amazingly beautiful hammers but they're all the same you figure out the process and then it's just like bang 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 every hammer i've ever made was custom completely different from one to the other i look at somebody like um Steve Dupra, he falls into that same category. A lot of his hammers are they're unique in their their style and and what he makes as far as that. And for me, okay, yes, I can handle making hammers like that that are unique and handmade. But I also got slapped in the face recently with a custom unique hammer getting told that they weren't happy with it because it wasn't a production looking hammer and it's like, "Well, Jesus Honestly, personally, you want to buy a production hammer, go down to Harbor Freight, go down to freaking Princess Auto, pick yourself up a bloody, you know, production hammer and be done with it versus buying yourself a beautiful forged hammer. And at the same time, you know, you get something, somebody like Sean Cunningham that's putting out forged hammers or um, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the gentleman that supplies Maritime Knife Supply, Peter LaPay. Peter Lepa, uh, I apologize. I said said his name wrong there. I'm pretty sure I, I don't know which one is right. But he's from Quebec, so they say things funny, right? It's hosers. Beautiful <laughs> hammers and unique in style. I don't 
find a lot of them are identical. He's, you know, hand making these hammers. I don't think there's like a die set that he's using to make them all the exact same. And I don't know Gnome Hammer's Forge's uh, technique either of how he's producing his hammers, but they do look pretty much identical to my, from what I'm seeing from my naked eye in the pictures. You get to a point with, if you start diving into making that though, that you you got to be careful because that's what people want. But then if you don't solidify yourself on making something specific, next thing you know, you're making this, you're making that, you're all over the place and you're not making anything that has your unique touch to it. That is, that is yours per se. You, you, you constantly falling into custom orders of what somebody else's want what somebody else wants versus what you want to build and then next thing you know you're not spending any time building what you want to build yourself and uh for me that's that's something i'm being super careful of right now i took a big step back in the blacksmithing world when i was like wait a minute i don't want to get pigeonholed here right yeah i think it depends on who your who is your customer base and then Sometimes it's well. So my example is the there's the EDC push right now, and uh, I said on a different podcast about a year ago, if you're not making a pocket EDC fixed blade, then you're leaving some market share out there, um, and that is that's all the rage right now. I totally agree with. I will carry a, a you know six inch EDC in my pocket over a folding knife any day. But see, I have so, an issue with that because yours. Oh, I carry a six inch EDC. Well, what the hell makes it an EDC? Oh, sure. Well, small I mean, fits in your pocket. Small <laughs> fits in your pocket, yeah. Anything, you can do a pocket down. Anything's a fucking EDC. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's actually true. I'll EDC an 8-inch blade on my belt sideways. Uh, <laughs> but it's that it's that small, small fixed blade. Is We're all making one. I make one. Everybody's making so one. So do I. I just started one, whatever, nine months ago. So yeah. an EDC... A folder cannot be an EDC then. Oh, they are. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. So the category is just wide open. You just make whatever and you just call it an there, EDC. There was just this funny gap in the market for those of us that are enthusiastic about folders versus fixed blades. And then when you make a fixed blade that, that fits in the pocket the same way a folder does and is it's not in the way of your phone and your keys, and there's a lot of things you got to kind of negotiate for people that love Okay. See, these are so key there's points. A little bit of a niche market there. There you go. Dennis has got one. Yeah. <laughs> Which I, I need to add one of his to my collection. I have everybody's EDC in my rotation. and uh, But yeah, I, I love fixed blade knives. I have a massive collection of folders too, but I love a little fixed blade. And so that's a big thing right now. I had one that I was playing with. It got in the hands of a bushcraft guy who put it piggyback on, on top of another blade. Big roundabout way. They came back to me and they're like, can you make 200 of these? It's like, no, no, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> but oh, man, some people would just love to get that. Right. Right. I don't and want that, it. All I saw was you will just suck my soul out of my body. I don't, I don't want to do that. And that's a, that's great for somebody. It's not great for me. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't want to make 200 more of those. I like the one I made. <laughs> I do these in batches of six, and that about, that yeah. is more than, 
enough for me that I don't want to do batches bigger than that. Do you guys Going know back who to that. Fair Forgeworks is? Grace, Grace and Fair out of Winnipeg? No. If you go and so. check out Grace and Fair's work, he he will blow your mind. He He's the type of guy that can do a batch of 200 knives. I can almost guarantee you that's something that's up his, up his sleeve for sure. And he's making really nice stuff. He's got a wicked connection because he's working at a place called North Forge here in Winnipeg, which is like a a community maker uh, facility. So he has access to a water jet, CNC water jet there, dude. Oh man. So many. What's his name? Grayson, what? Grayson fair. F E H R. Fair forge works. And he's a great kid, man. I've been, so he is one of the first knife makers I ever saw at a craft uh, sale, probably about 10 years ago. I think he was like 13 or 14 and he had his parents helping him out at a craft sale. And this kid has literally made the uh, he's made a huge mark on the community in in the Winnipeg and Canadian scene big time. Like there's a lot of guys that really lean on him for getting their water jetting done and just general help in the guy's a great great kid. Great kid. Can't say enough about him. Nice. And, and, okay. We're an we're an hour into this, you guys. I apologize. We got to bring up Maritime Knife Supply at this point. I tried bringing them up a little bit earlier, and it got sidelined. Maritime Knife Supply is your place to go. I know both of you guys know very well that Lawrence. Well, Dennis, I feel like I'm talking to Lawrence right now because it's a freaking <laughs> similarity, right? I, but dude, Lawrence has been so awesome. And speaking of something awesome that Lawrence is doing right now, he's got his scholarship back up again, and you can apply for that scholarship right away. If I'm not mistaken, let me just double check as to when he. He's doing that here. Da, 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 da. Um, how come I can't find it now? Shoot. Anyways, that, that's what the New England School of Metalworks, I'm pretty sure if I'm not mistaken, right? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. ABS Intro to Bladesmithing Scholarship opens from the 16th to the 30th. No, 16 to 30. Sorry, age group, 16 to 30. Applications are open until December 1st. Application is on the NESM website. That's North England's New England School. New England. Jeez, Louise! Wow. <laughs> so, it's not written in Canadian. I know, right? He used like <laughs> like this these letters, and I don't understand them. How does that work? My brain fogged. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, I right. got to hang with Lawrence at uh, Maker Camp uh, last month. So that's ah. always fun. Yeah, I'm kind of envious that you guys do that Maker Camp thing, dude. That is so cool. Frick, hosers. Yeah. Bunch of hosers get to hang out and have fun. Yes. Oh, Lucky. No kidding, dude. I want to go on a vacation so bad. But instead, I'm bringing up Maritime Knife Supply. Head over onto Maritime Knife Supply's website. Order yourself a 10-pack of belts. Save 10%. Get yourself an even heat or paragon kill, you guys. The, you, cannot, you cannot deny how that will change your game. We just heard from Brian how he upped his game to a 27 even heat. Like, There's a reason he upped his game, and he's, there's a reason he went with even heat. These guys are leaders of the industry when it comes to heat treating ovens. You can head over to Maritime Knife Supply, use the code FSCKILM. That'll save you $100 on checkout on even heat or Paragon kilns. 
up your game. You guys, you, you can't. I didn't know this. I know he's carrying Baker Forge Tool Steel. He's also carrying Damas Steel too. And yep. yeah, if he doesn't have what you want, hit him up. He'll probably bring it in for you. He even has perfect blade sharpening attachments from uh, yours truly. <laughs> I got mine. When did he start carrying those? Um, I shipped them out to him last month, so he just started carrying them like a week or so ago. And what's the price point on one of those on Maritime Nice Supply? Do you know? I haven't looked what he's charging because I think he's throwing in the the holders. Okay. Which oh, I don't. Yeah. I don't Here's supply. I saw that knife sharpening system, dude, and yep, I think I might have to get one if I if I decide to start doing the knives. I think that is something I'm going to have to get. Looks pretty legit. Brian's got one. Can I just fanboy it for a second here? Yeah, <laughs> lay it out, buddy. No, not because Dennis is here, but if you knew how much money I have spent on sharpening solutions over the years, like I've been sharpening for ages. I've got Japanese river stones and I have a Tormac. I have the Wicked Edge. I've got the old Apex. Thousands and thousands of dollars. I've actually developed my own sharp trainer for, you know, flat stone sharpening. So I picked this up. <laughs> uh, and I what I've come to in my in my making too. So here's here's my sale for it. When you get a knife from me, it has a very, very professional and very highly polished consistent edge. Yeah, you can get a, a fine optic and trace my edges and they look they look very nice. That's something my knives are known for. So anything that I'm going to use on my knife that I ship to you has to create that. The only thing that creates that that I've figured out so far is that, that TS Prof, which is I'm a big fan of, and then my kind of my handstone method. So I was skeptical. Like I looked at this and said, this might be a very nice system for a quick edge a really good quick edge and it might not have the consistency and very short learning curve as soon as i figured it out the edge is equally consistent to every other system i use that's my customer base worthy um so that's i've been massively impressed with it i can draw a killer burr it looks professional from tip to heel so yeah, and I just sold. Uh, I, I did my katana on it, so you just gotta yeah, change, wow. put a bigger bar on it, and yeah. Uh, so I, I hit Dennis a couple of days ago or last week or so. I've got a, I've got a cutlass I'm working on, and I'm, I was looking at how do you configure this to do bigger blades? Because I know Brian House, they he demonstrated, uh, they were doing did a machete or something, kind of in the in the original videos. But I was looking at it going, how am I going to get that kind of edge on this katana that I'm, or this uh, cutlass that I can deliver to a customer? And so I thought of some ways to modify it. And then I reached out to Dennis. He's like, actually, just do it this way. And yeah, spot on. It was, I did a couple tests with another, a sacrificial blade that didn't work out. It was perfect. So uh, it's, beautiful. It's, it's so well built and it is overbuilt. It is so strong, so sturdy. So. Yeah. Okay, I usually only give about thirty seconds for an ad read. So Sorry. no. <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> I, I, it. Awesome, dude. I don't I don't pine over products, but I was impressed by this and, and it's one of those ones where you go sharpen something and you're like, damn, okay. It it's good. So yeah. Oh, you sold yeah, me well on done. it, man. That's awesome, dude. Very awesome. Yeah. Um 
What about going to events? Are you guys big on going to events in your local area? Or, like, I know you mentioned going to Blade Show and to Texas. Is there events that are local to you that you guys hit up at all? Or, what about you, Brian? Is there stuff local in Washington? There's not a ton. We get, um, you know, we get some good farmer's markets in the area. Uh, there's one down south that Mareko goes to where he does a little sharpening booth mm. um, down in Tacoma area. But it's, you know, it's Seattle. It's, it's kind of weird. It's kind of like Portland. Um, so that's something I've been watching for. We used to have some good ones where you could go set up a table or the, there'd be other knife vendors. And um, we've got some. Mostly it's gun shows. and that's just not really my scene. Um, and those are few, few and far between here. So the east side of the state, they do have some, a uh, couple knife shows that happen, but I just, I haven't made it over. So, so for me, me really, it's going to be kind of targeting the bigger ones like Blade and some of the regional ones. Yeah, I got to cut back. Actually, I went to every Blade show this year and Maker Camp. Wow. Um, I gotta, like <laughs> next year when, uh, when if I'm full time, I got to cut the expenses. So I'll right. probably just be going to June, blade in June. But uh, I'm also probably will start just hitting like just doing the local farmers market here in town, just to see some locals. Yeah. And oh, actually, I am probably going to do the one in Solvang, which is like Southern California. Um, that's supposed to be a really good show. So I might go to that one because that's drivable. I don't need a plane. I don't need a – I'll probably get a cheap hotel, but who knows. Well, you got to do – so you did Maker Camp. What about uh, local hammerins? Do you have hammerins local to you guys that you do? Not really. Not for me. Um, well, you're in the Bay Area, the, aren't you? Yeah, but there's there's not – I mean, I'm Ooh. sure there's hammerins, but that's more like the blacksmith guys, yeah, not the – you're talking about the west coast in general i mean he's in california i'm in washington it's you you need to go hang out with sorry as soon as you head back east yeah there's hammer-ins everywhere it's a thing there's just so much more history there Hmm. um yeah and it's just not as deep rooted in the community here. So, well, the, uh, I know the California Blacksmith Association does a lot of stuff, dude. Are you guys are either of you guys part of the California? No, I'm not. no. Oh, dude, man, I I want to. I like literally almost want to pay you. Go down to Lear Arapaches, uh shop and be like, "We're making a knife. I don't she, care if you don't want to make she, it." We're she's that's already in the plan. She's half an hour for me. Dude, um, I'm, I'm going to do a triple T from uh, from her ruin... shop, and we're we're going to make some kumai, I think, in the new forge that she's making. You're going to ruin yeah. her if you make her make knives, dude. Don't let her be. <laughs> no, no, I, I don't think we're going to make a knife. I think we're going to forge something in her oh, new forge. With that is the most badass forge I've ever seen. Right? I can't wait till it's finished. Right. Yeah, she told me about it before she started posting it on because uh, we were talking about when we were going to get together. And uh, I said, well, finish your forge first after she showed me pictures of it. It's Have you seen it, Brian? You know who we're talking about? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Baba Yaga? Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Very good. Dude, has, has, I don't think that girl can produce things that aren't awesome. Like, it's just. Yeah. Yeah. She exhumes awesomeness. 
Yeah, the the other person that's close to me is Kelly Vermeer Vela. She's uh, like forty minutes from me. That's a name I'm not familiar with, dude. Really? Oh, you need to go. She she's won Fortune Fire twice. She was the first woman to ever win Fortune Fire. Uh, well, oh, this is, you're talking about a knife maker. This is why I don't know about. Yeah, her. yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. You you know her, Brian? Don't you? Yeah, yeah, I know yeah, she. yeah. She's she does some awesome work. Um, but she, I've been to her shop. That's where I did my journeyman test because my master smith was doing a cl- collab with her, so we did it there. Yeah. Oh. Well, yeah, I have some monsters in my area too. It's, it's a shame that we don't have a better. We have Steve Lish or Dave Lish is south of me. We got Mareko Masi's here. Uh, well, and where you are is the Northwest uh, Blacksmith Association that is chock full of fucking big names too, dude. Salem Straub's up here too. Oh Jesus! He's in. Is he in Washington, Oregon? He's in uh, kind of South Central Washington. Oh, yeah. He's over by uh, Noah. So from yeah, River Forge. He's he's in Washington too. I was yeah, trying he, to. He's get one I'd like to take a course from. Yeah, I was trying to get Noah to join us for this podcast, but it didn't work out because of the timing for him, unfortunately. And that's that's where Dennis falls into this. You guys is. Both the co-hosts that would normally be working with me, um, Nick and Nick, Welshy and Verbray. Verbray is getting ready for surgery right away, and he's like, no, I can't do it. I'm too busy. Nick Welsh, Welshy, he's out hunting right now. These guys are like, no, we can't do it. So I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> Noah, dude, you didn't get the chance to speak with Brian when he was on Hustle and Grind. Let's do this together, dude. And he was down, but it just... And and we tried to shoot for what was it Friday night, Brian? That didn't work yeah. out. Sorry, oh, my no. apologies. Um, but this is awesome, dude. Getting getting Dennis in is freaking wicked, man. I'm stoked on this. Like oh. the community <laughs> connection, you guys, and all these names are dropping that are near you that you guys get to connect with. That's how amazing. I'm I'm jealous. Noah missed um, Walter Sorrels on his own on uh, hustling guy. <laughs> he was mad. No. Oh, that was a good one. Yeah, that was yeah. fun. So, so the reason I brought up all the the get-togethers is Abana's fiftieth anniversary is happening right away, June sixth to ninth, twenty twenty-four, in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. If you guys haven't heard about it, then you're sleeping under a rock because this is going to be a massive event. Abana is like the leaders of the industry in North America when it comes to blacksmithing, there is going to be educational tents that are going to cover all three levels of the Abana national curriculum. So if you're working on any of the different levels of the curriculum, you can bring your projects to the conference for review and have an instructor sign off on it. If I'm not mistaken, the CBA is actually who created this curriculum mark asprey is one of the main gentlemen behind this and abana was like you guys this is like the perfect curriculum we're going to adopt it so now abana has adopted that same curriculum and essentially it's an artist blacksmith curriculum that will take you through three different levels of design work including your joinery techniques uh, your upsetting your tapering all the different techniques that you can put in towards a project grills is what you create in each three projects and then at the end of it you present your grill for judging 
So, mm. yeah. So um, you, you, is there like a master level on just like a master blacksmith? And is there a test, like an Abana test for that? Definitely not a master blacksmith thing. That's If you want master blacksmith, you got to be in Europe to get that stuff. You're not getting that here in, in North America, from my understanding. That's, that's a European thing. Um, when somebody refers to somebody as being a master blacksmith in North America, it's simply that, well, this person is literally a master at their craft, so I consider them a master blacksmith, right? But um, if I'm not mistaken, master blacksmith is an actual accreditation that you can acquire in Europe through your journeyman testing. This is just a three-level curriculum test is all it is. It doesn't actually give you... Um, you know, Master Smith. And where is that? Where is that Abana event? In Johnstown, Pennsylvania, June 6th to 9th, 2024. Hmm. That's where Central for, Center for Metal of Arts is with uh, Pat Quinn that runs that. Oh, okay. Johnstown oh. is known as being like the hub of metal in North America, dude. That's where all the major manufacturers were back in the early 1900s. Um, Crazy, crazy, mm. town, crazy town full of have you seen center for metal of arts dude the no. power hammer i mean pictures but yeah you can like, that's what that's what i mean you can like walk yeah, yeah. power hammer that's there it's huge it's so crazy that big huge industrial power hammer they have is just massive someday <laughs> I, I wish i wish so we we've got onto the um topic of doing your own unique thing and brian dude you fall into this Tortuga Blade Works. It's the pirate thing, dude. I know that that's we've. I heard it on the other podcast that you were on. It's it's where you started with your thing. Was this like this pirate? You know, just an obsession with pirates. You you've read all the books. You've studied this stuff. You love it. I know you're making knives based off of a lot of that information. You've recently been really hot on the market for a patina that you do on your knives and you mentioned yeah. to me that this might be something of interest to talk about and i am interested because i was looking at this patina i'm like wow that is really cool and that could be utilized on things other than knives too so dude lay it out man what's going on have you yeah. let the cat out of the bag on that one yet i haven't but i think we're about to so <laughs> Uh, and I actually, yeah, I, it works on other things. I, I did it on my uh, Apollo Forge from from Brian, so from Brian House, uh, oh, no, which is it. cool. Yeah, yeah, oh, I can send you some pictures. Yeah, uh, which has been actually cool to see the colors change as it's fired. So. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, so that's that's one. I've been I worked on it for a couple of years, and uh, I'm also one to say. I don't think any of us do anything uh, or create anything new. Uh, there's a, there's other people have done things like this. Um, Zombie Tools did one in the past that had a bit of a copper, um, some craziness to it too. And that was far before I was messing with it. Um, I kind of found them after the fact. And it's a, it's a process I came into and I love the Brute Forge. I love patinas. I love etches, all of that. So, and then, it just kind of took me down that route one day going, what would a, uh, you know, a shipwreck patina look like? Uh, I, I played a lot with copper and I was shipwreck patinaing using ammonia and 
other chemicals on some copper things. So I did like a lighter and stuff a couple of years ago. Um, those types of patinas are notoriously surface level and very fragile. So you have to mm. cover them, you know, with lacquers and things like that. So I kind of got a wild hair and I was like, how can I make something like this? That's strong enough to, you know, a patina on a blade that will work. And because up to that point, all I'd really done is mustard patinas and your normal acid etches and things like that. Um, so anyways, this, I, I finally kind of came across this, um, this process I settled on where it was kind of the right mix of things. And I let that fly, um, about the same time, another maker had figured it out too. And we were kind of talking back and forth because we found out each other was doing something similar, totally different processes. Um, but we were trying to solve the same problem. How do you make, um, this shipwreck patina with copper and other colors, but make it durable. And, um, so anyways, that's, uh, that's kind of what I figured out and happy to share it. That's, I had a lot of people reach out and a lot of people that were asking me, I kind of said, give me a couple months with this while I still play with it. I've got some knives out there, people beating on them. Cause I want to make sure this is as strong as I think it is. Um, so anyhow, if you want me to spill the beans on that, I can a little bit here. So here it goes. <laughs> you guys ready for this? Right. You heard it first in Fortside chat. Remember. So, I mean, this isn't going to be novel new uh, information, but um, for people that have experimented with this stuff, but there's a product called uh, Jax that's a copper coating that is too weak. So don't use that. Um, I've started there like a lot of people uh, have when trying to coat carbon steels with copper. Um, that's a, a copper solution that as soon as it comes in contact with a carbon steel, copper plates it but it's very, very thin, won't even stand up to buffing. Um, so that's what I started playing with. And then um, I quickly kind of went down the route of electro etching. So just doing YouTube searches and uh, looking at nickel plating versus copper plating. Um, in the process of experimenting with that, I figured out a, a copper plating solution that worked a little bit better than a lot of the tutorials. And it was a total accident. Um, I soaked a piece of copper in a mixture of distilled water and muriatic acid um, until enough of copper had moved into solution that um, I kind of had this blue, you know, that blue solution where I knew there was a lot of copper in there. Yep. Um, set it up to do um, an electrolyte where you got a cathode and an anode. Um, you, I, I was first using a lantern battery, um, put the blade in the solution. And um, if you look up, tutorials on copper plating you'll see what i'm talking about it's very basic um in that solution um so initially i was working with copper plating copper plating was a little bit better than the jack solution the copper plating using this muriatic acid and water mix was a lot more durable and once the solution got pretty heavy saturated with copper um the plating that i was getting with a little bit higher voltage using um I, I got rid of the battery. I started using an adjustable DC oh, yeah. uh, you know, controller yeah. using some higher, some higher voltage there. Um, I was getting a really, really thick copper plating. So process wise, just to simplify it, I, I hand sand the blade down to about 600 grit, sometimes 400 grit. Um, but it's very smooth, really glossy. The glossier, the finish, the better, the final product. But if you go too high, like 2,000 grit or 1,000 grit, there's kind of diminishing returns on how much that acid is going to 
you know, bite and the plating's going to bite. So I've been sitting around 600 for heavy use knives to get good uh, plating there. And then the next obstacle was this is kind of a chaotic finish. And if you look at what other people have done, they get kind of this wispy, cloudy, non, um, there's not crisp edges to the, uh, to the copper plating. So I started playing with resists um, to figure out I only want to plate specific areas that look really oh, yeah. flaky, they're really, really heavy. Um, and that was a big rabbit hole. Uh, and ultimately, it ended up being a simple solution. Rubber cement is non-reactive to all of the acids and also in the <laughs> electro edge. So you can paint on your blade, whatever design you want. What you don't want to etch with the thick copper plating, you just put rubber cement on. As soon as you're done with that, you wipe it off. That comes off. So then you, I'm selectively uh, etching pretty thick uh, copper, you know, patterns on there. I've also uh, experimented using a, a sponge as kind of the the contact in between, rather than just dunking it in the solution, right, which had yeah. some pretty pretty cool designs when the sponge was soaked with the the muriatic acid copper solution. And then after that. Couple specific questions I've gotten, um, and then it's just a mixture of a few different etchants. So I use uh, Birchwood Casey Super Blue to do super blacks, um, and do those with Q-tips, cotton balls, different things. That is a darker black. Um, Jax has a uh, another chemical that's like a, a steel and iron blackening solution that doesn't work very well, but because it doesn't work very well, what it produces is greens and blues. Um, so a lot of people ask me, how do you get those greens and blues that look like that corroded copper? It's not because I've corroded the copper um, and oxidized it to a green and blue. I'm adding that Jack's blackening that does not work well on shiny metal. And you rub it on lightly with a Q-tip, you get... <laughs> Blues and greens. It's the fact that you, you use you use a, a product that doesn't really work well, but does for your application. Yeah, and it looks it looks outstanding on top of the copper, and then kind of on the adjacent metals, and then um, and these are all really resilient, you know, uh, etchants on the steel. So um, yeah, basically you kind of play with those, put put your kind of modeled patterns on there that you want, and then I treat it a lot like pulling a Damascus knife out of a coffee etch. When I'm done, um, I rinse it with distilled water, blow it off with compressed air. And then I coat those with carnauba wax, like straight carnauba wax and the glow. You know, if you look on my Instagram, I've got a couple of cool pictures. Just, it almost looks 3D with, you know, some of the the copper flaking and whatnot. And, um, but cooler than that is just the, the guys that have been kind of stress testing those. I've, I've put some on some of my grizzly hunter bush, bush crafter knives that have been out getting beat on a couple of them been out skinning deer and stuff this fall and um, getting pictures of how the, the patina is aging. It's awesome. So oh, nice. in a nutshell, it's just science, but uh, yeah. <laughs> a happy accident there with the, really the electro etching. So the copper, the copper pieces, is the big one. I've used every copper plating solution and none works quite like that as far as durability. I'm I'm not surprised that that's the process, but at the same time, I definitely did not think that it was quite that involved because one of the th one of the things I was kind of like 
questioning with it is like, okay, um, ferric chloride. If you get copper in ferric chloride, it contaminates the ferric chloride with copper, and that copper will transfer over to stuff, right? Yep. But that's where you're and talking actually, about where it's too thin, right? Yeah. Early on, I played with that. I actually combined that process with Dennis figured out a process for your oil oh, uh, yeah. patterning. I was playing with that with with the copper as well, and I got some crazy looking stuff. But the copper was just too thin still. Uh, the way you know the copper would interact with the acid, and I I worked dissolving as much as I possibly could in solution, trying to get the plating thicker. But nothing substitute straight up electro plating. It's just thicker. It's durable. It's the reason you know it's done that way. And I like the the idea that you can actually control it too like that's awesome mm -hmm. that you don't have to do the entire piece or that you can do the little the little q-tip or sponge patterning with it if you want to this this opens up a lot of ideas in my head because one of the things i've been doing a lot lately is playing i love copper absolutely love fucking copper dude especially when it comes to artistic work and one of the mm -hmm. things I've I've played with this for a couple of years now is melting copper into steel and it's actually super freaking easy but the problem is is the copper wants to run so if you don't have something that's either a little bit dished or something underneath it to catch the copper that runs off you're you're walking into trouble here man because that copper will go fucking everywhere will ruin your forge because it gets into your forge and then everything you put into your forge afterwards for a while comes out with copper on it um yep. but matt you can lay on copper to stuff Thick by doing it that yep. way and somebody said to me in one of my posts was like okay now go do that on a knife because that's where you're gonna make your money on and it was like well i don't know maybe i don't make knives though i do artistic work so <laughs> but this yep. this electro etching dude i i think i could utilize that in the artistic stuff as well i think a lot of people could art they could utilize that into their artistic work i'm super yeah. glad i asked you man or i'm glad i didn't even ask you you told me about it and you're like well we could talk about this if you want <laughs> fucking right i want to talk about this bud that would look yeah, cool on I'd... flowers those artistic flowers yeah well and if it's not a hard use surface like a knife that's gonna get you know abraded then you can do a lot more exposing it to you know ammonia and things like that that will grow those deep blues and greens and if it's something you can put a stabilizing, you know, clear coat over, mm -hmm. um, beautiful stuff. And that's what I did with my forge. So mm -hmm. I did the, I did the, the electro etching. I put it in vats. I did on a larger scale, and then I did the vapor treatment. But then I coated it with a high gloss, high temperature stabilizer. So it's it's got even kind of a more, more of that shipwreck look than even I'm getting on knives, which is been cool it's just getting deepened as i you know use the forge with the heat it's been, it's been cool one of the things that i've struggled with in the past is when you bring out temper colors specifically on stainless steel you get some really nice temper colors on stainless steel copper does too copper gives some really beautiful temper colors but trying to get those colors to stay as um uh, what's the word I'm looking for prevalent or to have that pop to them. 
when you clear coat it, you, you tend to lose a little bit of that luster. That's the word I was looking for, the luster, the chatoyance of it. Yep. Have you found yeah. a specific product that works well in regards to that ever, or you just? Nope. The no. only only thing, I mean, because I'm using it on knives, right? <laughs> That's why I said I'm, I'm using straight Carnuba wax, which is a lot of guys are doing that on their Damascus now. Yeah. Um, versus the paste waxes, because it's a you got to heat apply it. it, it almost clear coats it, but it's still temporary. Problem with the copper coatings, like it's very easy to get deep reds and crimsons, and they're always so vibrant and awesome when they're brand new. Yep. But they're still in the presence of oxygen, so they're degrading like yep. immediately. You, so. you watch that's what I had, but the one I did, I did a video on getting the crimson patina. And I found that washing it with warm, soapy water, gone. Oh, <laughs> yeah. wow. Crazy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're not durable at all. So I took it off and went back to the black. The and even as a showpiece, copper corrodes fairly quickly. It's not going to stay that unless you clear coat the living hell out of it, right? Right. Huh, interesting. And that's, that's why with my the shipwreck patina, I went to the chemicals I did because they kind of simulate some of those other treatments that you totally, have to clear coat. Totally, dude. Yeah. And, and they hold up for not forever. I mean, they're going to, they're going to wear through. And um, of course it's easy to apply. So if somebody ever wants the patina restored and they send it back, I'll do it again. So. Well, I know you're, I know you're hot on using carnauba wax, but if you may, let me tell you about the Twiller linseed oil. The Twiller linseed oil is a company out of Saskatchewan. They grow the flour, they press the flour, they bottle it themselves. These are two brothers working from home. It's a homegrown business that you will not find a better linseed oil, food safe. And they also have a couple paste products. One of their paste products has a carnauba base to it and definitely hardens up nicely because of that carnauba base in it. You can have it over to detoilerlinseed.com. Use the code FORGECHAT10. That'll save you 10% on orders, $50 or more. I can't say enough good stuff about the Detoiler Linseed Oil. The actual linseed oil itself is something I lean on heavily for so much of my work. Awesome stuff. Don't drink it, though. I don't know. Yet. <laughs> don't, try, don't, don't mix it with Crown Royal. It's food safe, but it'll give you diarrhea. <laughs> yeah, it is food safe because it's it's not uh, you know the uh, processed linseed oil. Exactly. Well, he's not putting any of the dryer products in it. That's what makes it food safe. As soon as you start putting stuff like Japan dryer in it, no bueno. Yeah. Yeah, and that's in the wax that I make for my own knives. I, that's kind of what I do. I do a mixture of beeswax and um, raw linseed oil. I haven't tried theirs, which I, I think I will. Cool. Um, and then carnauba wax and. Yeah, when you go and you buy linseed oil from the department stores, you're getting stuff that's got those dryers in it. You can, t dude, you take a bottle of the Twiller linseed oil and you take a bottle of stuff from the department store, the smell alone is mind-blowing, the difference in smells. it's I can't handle the stuff from the department store. It stinks. I hate it. The stuff from the Twiller, I'm like, rub it all over my wood all day, baby. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what we don't know what you. We don't want to know what yeah. you do in private, Lando. <laughs> my, my, 
I was going to say my hammers, but that doesn't help the situation at all either. <laughs> oh, man. Oh. So, now, outside of the um, the shipwreck patina that you're doing, that is absolutely amazing. One of the other amazing things that you do a lot of is stainless sand mine. <laughs> amazing work, dude, but stainless steel is something that scares me. I know it scares a lot of other people. What are some what are some of the things that you got to consider when you start doing a stainless sand mine? Where where does that game go? Yeah, I was so I was one that I I fell in love with those designs, just seeing what people were doing. And I had a lot of failures until I had a success with it. Um, and funny enough, I it took one conversation with a, a, a master bladesmith over a beer and lunch just to kind of say, this is what you got to do. Go home and try this. Um, and so I settled on one type of stainless to play with. Anytime I, this is kind of my philosophy on is anytime you're going to learn one of these funky techniques is stick with some materials that you know really well for a bit. Don't change too many variables until you figure it out. Um, so I had some people asking me, oh, can you do this? And can you add copper and can you add nickel? And I was like, I can't even get a good weld with just a mono steel core and stainless cladding. So, uh, you know, so I worked on that for a while. Secret for me, it's no oxygen. So um, and that was really troubleshooting. The, the biggest, best advice I got was it was all about prep. So making sure those surfaces are flat, or flat and clean. And um, so truing up your core material, truing up the mating surface on the stainless steel. Uh, for me, I had to have the right kind of stainless. Um, I do see that a lot online on you know forums. You see people saying, "Oh, I'm trying, you know, 440 stainless or." Do a little bit of research, find out which, if you want to do stainless, find out which stainless is forge weld. Um, well, make sure you get one of those. Um, all the major knife suppliers carry a couple different, you know, varieties. And when it comes to work. stainless steel, the stainless steel is not on the edge. So you don't have to worry about a stainless steel that's a tool yeah. steel, right? Nope. So this is just your cladding. And, and I started with just three layers. So you got your your mono steel core and two pieces of stainless as your sandwich. Um, so truing up those surfaces, um, the advice I got was, you know, grind those flat, grind all the scale off, get it to where when you hold the sandwich up to light, you're not seeing light through the layers and then weld it all around with no gaps. So you don't have any oxygen getting to that weld. Um, funny enough, that was actually the hardest challenge for me. At the time I was using a really crappy flux core oh, MIG God. welder. You know, that was running off a 110 wall. Oh, no. It was, you know, I was I was reaching beyond my means as far as tooling goes to do something. And so by the time I got that billet welded up, I had exposed all that, you know, all those mating surfaces to excess, you know, oxygen and all kinds of contaminants. And so after I got that sorted, uh, the first one that I had success with, I actually took to another guy who had a proper welder, had the right wall plug to plug it into with enough power and he he wasn't a knife man he was just a welder and i just said hey can you weld this shut so there's no oxygen and he stick welded it closed i went home and forge welded it out and i had a good good weld hmm. um, what's the stainless you're using 416 for the climate i'm using 416 and yeah, um, that's what i use yeah so i <laughs> i've gone down a lot of different paths with stainless because that's something i i 
for a period of time, I was like, I just want to get good at this. And I want to learn how do I manipulate the patterns and the waves and all the activity. And I played with 410 a little bit. I prefer 416. Um, it's got some sulfur in it, which can introduce some complications in that forge weld. It can, um, it can actually compromise that weld a little bit, but that variation and um, I actually like that. I think that's something I figured out how to kind of manipulate a little bit to make that transition line pop a little bit more to the point where some people always ask me if I have a nickel shim in mine. Uh-huh. Uh, it's really that, that carbon migration zone. If you keep it at the right temperature, hot enough and long enough, um, not too long that you're migrating way too much carbon. Um, but yeah, that's, I spent a lot of time just kind of studying that, trying to get good at that one thing. And, uh, so now everybody orders it. So I'm stuck making it. <laughs> everybody has plenty of failures with stainless MI when they tried it. Yeah. Myself it's, included. It's so, it's so beautiful of the payoff. Once you, you know, yeah. you grind it out and then you, you hand sand it and there's that labor of love and then you etch it and it's just kind of comes alive. It's pretty addictive. Yeah. It's up there with the hormone. It's like the same kind of payoff yeah. when you get a nice hormone. I feel like you have to chase Hamones more though. Like you do, wise, you definitely you know, do. <laughs> that's one I haven't, I just have not tackled yet. I've, I've tried, but I just, yeah, it's actually a rabbit hole. I'm resisting a little bit because I just know what will, what'll happen if I go down. <laughs> do you have to be cautious of how you heat treat a sad, my blade? Um, cautious. Maybe I, I say more just, once you know what you have to do, you have to be pretty regimented and um, kind of stick to the to the recipe. So um, I don't have a lot of failures. I don't have a lot of blades that tear themselves apart. Early on, I had a couple, and I immediately knew why. Um, generally, when I had that happen, I knew why it happened before it happened. Like I overheated something, or it was um, you know uneven heating, or but I've got. I have a pretty strict recipe for how I do it now to where I just know what's going to happen. I know what it's going to look like. As long as I stick to that recipe and those steps, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Um, which is actually something I was explaining to somebody recently going, looking back on my growth as a maker. Cause when I was trying to figure this out and every sand, my billet, I even tried to, you know, grind was failing. Now it's a very routine thing for me. That's pretty cool. It's, it's, I really enjoy looking at that going, man, I'm good at that. Uh, what's my next thing, you know, to focus on. So when you're yeah. forging out a sand, my billet, you're doing that on your press. Yep. Can you do that by hand? Do you think it's just as easy to do by hand or? It's not as easy. It's a lot of work. Um, so using 416, 416 uh, with, with the added sulfur, a little more machinable it's a little more movable i've, I've done 410 by hand too which is well, I mean, actually all sucks to do by hand um <laughs> i mean there's guys who've only only done it by hand who don't so and i'm going the opposite direction i've always had the press since i started doing this um a, a guy asked me who, who who's trying to do sand mine doesn't have those tools so i said you know i'm going to do this to show you it can be done and i, I made a blade out of it but i just said i don't ever want to do that again mm-hmm. um, and then the the other piece is i've learned with my drawing dice to manipulate the waves in the sand my 
the way that I skip space when I stretch that send my billet out is kind of what introduces a lot more activity. And the blade that I hand, hand drew out was pretty boring, really, in, in the way the activity kind of manifested through the layers. Interesting. So, yeah, I get the big valleys. Do you guys, oh, do you know who yeah. Anvil Studios is? Uh, it's or not Anvil as in like an anvil, but Anne is her first name. Ville is her last name, I believe. That's fucked up now that I just realized that. Wow, Anvil Studios. <laughs> I Okay, got to find her. I'm pretty sure that's who I'm talking about, but she does. Makes... Sorry? She's got a lot of rings. Yeah, she does the Mokumai, but she does, the way she does her patterning, and she does classes on it, is she does chisel patterning. So she literally can chisel out, like, flowers, stars, all sorts of different awesome patterns into her Mokumai, and then grinds it away, and is, or, I don't know what the entire process is, but her billet is left with those little marks in it that will resemble flowers and stuff like that in the in the finished product it looks absolutely amazing and when i see that i'm like that there's got to be a way to pull that into knife making and and the billets that we use in knife making like you see the guys doing ladder damascus all you're doing is putting in specific push marks in certain places if you're using a little tiny chisel you should be able to do the same idea on a smaller scale and more detailed, right? Is that making sense? Yeah, it's tough. It's it's kind of random though. You start you start just removing material on a pattern. You don't always get what <laughs> what the, what you took out isn't exactly the pattern that shows up. Sometimes you need a lot of layers um, to get that kind of. The more layers, the easier it is to get that kind of detail. Yeah, but um, it's tough. And if she can do it, that's awesome. But well, I she's doing it on bracelets and stuff, man. So if you can do it on bracelets, you got to be able to do it on a knife, right? Oh yeah, I mean it, it's just yeah. I'm, I'm looking. I'm toiling, going through her site now. I haven't seen one of the one of the ones you're talking about, but the the um, very very first thing she's got posted, the very first post on her page right now. It's a, it looks like a bracelet, and it almost looks like a tree coming out with like leaves falling off the tree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. I didn't even, I went right by that one. That's intentionally chiseled out like that. Like that's. That's cool. Right? (laughs) I love it. I, I would, I would love to play with that process and figure that out because that's so cool, man. Like that that takes me into a realm of something that's like beyond what a lot of other people are doing, man. Kind of like the same idea as like how uh, Prince Fordrick started putting in the, uh, the rounds into his, into the, the middle of the plug welds. Yeah, oh yeah. God, that's so gorgeous too, dude. Have you done that Dennis? It's on my list and I've, I've talked with um, Josh about it. Um, um, about how he does it. And, and uh, I actually talked to Koi about it too, because he, he, he's done it a few times. So I, I know the process. I just haven't had the time to do it. Well, it's, uh, but it's definitely cool. Something I'll be watching for out of your page for sure, man, because if you're going to do it, something, something special there for sure. Guaranteed. 
Guaranteed. Yeah, actually, maybe maybe that will be an upcoming video. Who knows? Ooh, look what I just pushed you to do, hey? <laughs> no, I'm like, Viking challenge, here note. we come. <laughs> well, could, okay, could you imagine having, like, instead of it being a round plug weld, why not do something like a long oval plug weld? Like, for example, I not your... I want to call it a blood groove. It's not called a blood groove. You're fuller. If you have a fuller <laughs> mark down your blade, imagine having that fuller remove what's left when you groove it, remove that indentation part and replace it with a piece of different Damascus. Yeah, you, you, you're talking something really complicated now. <laughs> That's a lot of milling work to get that perfect. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, you need a mill for that. That's not, I mean, that's I have a mill, but... It's easy. easy. If you got it. Well, it is if you have a mill. It's not if you don't have a mill. Yeah, but any kind of radius on a mill, then you, then we're talking about pulling out the rotary table and well, unless you got the CNC, that's tough. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so when you with your mill, are you using mostly flat end bits, or have you picked up any of the round ones? Uh, I have I have the uh, round bits. That's how I do. I do most of my fullers on the um, on the mill. Stupid me! Like I'm no machinist by trade whatsoever. I'm a welder. Machining is one of those things that I look at. And I'm like I drool. I wish I would have gone to school for machining instead. Machinists are the fucking geniuses of our world that make things happen. They know everything machinists i bow down to all of you but literally had no idea that you could get rounded flutes like like what <laughs> i thought they were all flat end and you, and in order to get rounded that you actually literally had to to move your bit like that i was like what the fuck i'm such an idiot you can get you can spend a lot of money and get dovetail ones you can get some really fancy ones yeah kind of the same idea as like router bits for router bits. Wood router. same thing yeah duh Right. Well, rudder bits are carbide tipped. You could actually use a, some of the rudder bits in a mill if you really wanted to get, depending on what you were cutting. Yeah. Speaking of tooling, too, because you were asking, what are my next tooling purchases? Yeah. Uh, mill's always on the list, but Dennis, you got the laser pecker, didn't you? Oh, I did. Dude. That is on my short list. It's on my that list is- now, too. After I listened to the freaking Work For podcast, and I was like, yep. Guess what? I was gonna get Dennis or freaking Brian to make me my stamps. I was like, no, I'm just gonna order the laser yeah. packer. Fuck this shit. If you haven't ordered, you missed the sale uh, that they had because um, they had the laser packer three on for eleven ninety nine and the laser packer four for fourteen ninety nine. Uh, See, I mean, I think it's still on sale. I'm Check. in the I'm in the pre Christmas window where like. My wife's asking what I want for Christmas, and I could combine everything into one tool if I wanted. And I'm I'm contemplating the, the laser picker. So. It that that's what I do all my maker's marks with ever since I got it. Yeah, it, so this uh, is, it's really nice. My question for Nick was like I start I messaged Nick right away, and the LP4 is seventeen ninety nine right now. Yeah, so you missed the sale. Damn. Okay, as if it's not going to go on sale for Black Friday. It probably will. Right? Okay. That's what I'm going to – I'm waiting for Black Friday, and then we'll see. But I asked Nick this question is, what else do I want to get with it? The LP4, it shows it comes like this 
you know, as a laser, it looks like what you need. And then all of a sudden it's like commonly bought together. There's the slide extension, there's a rotary extension, there's uh, a battery power pack you can add to it. It's like, what are all these other things and do I need them? I They sent me the rotary piece. I haven't used it. Um, and I have the LP3, so I don't, I don't think I can, maybe I can put the sliding bed, but for me, I just use it for maker's marks and small because the the bed is like three by four or three by five which is plenty big for what i want so i i don't want the moving table but if you the lp4 comes with a the diode laser so you can cut wood and cut leather right because you can't do that with the three yeah so if you want to cut things out that's where you want the four can you Uh, mark or engrave leather. Can you engrave leather with the yeah, fiber laser? Though? Okay. Yeah, the LP3 will mark, will engrave leather because um, it'll it'll burn the leather. But it won't. It's really weird. It won't touch wood. It won't even make a mark on it. Interesting. But I don't do any of that. So, like, in fact, I even Brian, you probably saw I did a giveaway for uh, my existing diode laser uh, on the channel because I never use it. No. Yeah. Jeez, yeah. Eh? yeah. And did you, did you end up giving it away? Actually, I, I got to do it again because the guy that that won doesn't want it. He's in Germany, so uh, I'm going to be giving it away. <laughs> Drawing another line, an, another name, and giving it away again. Okay. So, and where do you go for that? You are one of my patrons because <laughs> okay. uh, it'll be I'm giving it away to a patron at. Okay. Uh, Tyrell Knifeworks. So. so if you want to be a patron of Tyrell Knifeworks, you head over to TyrellKnifeworks.com, sign up as a patron. Well, there's a link. There's a Patreon link from my website. You right. can go become a become a patron. Perfect. Cool. But then you get access to his Discord where the juicy stuff is. Yeah. All of, there's a there's a Discord chat that uh, I'm in all the time and all of, it's a really busy chat. Actually lately it's been crazy. It's funny. I'm I'm not active in the chat, but I learn a lot from that Discord. Yeah, it's cool. It's very it's, good. Yeah. I know there's a few other makers that have um, a Patreon account set up like that. Mareko Mousy has a really good one too, from <laughs> what I've heard. Um, do you know of anybody else that is doing something similar to that that you recommend? Um, there's a, I mean, there's a ton of guys that have Patreons. Like Walter Sorrell's got a Patreon. Like a, a, most of the big makers, like the big YouTube presence guys, will have um, Patreon. Like owner uh, owner Caglar from Fire and Steel, he's got one. Dies in every film. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the guys will have them. Cool. I'm yeah. I'm on most of those Patreons. Dennis and Mareko's. Um, discords are pretty much the most active ones as far as just content and substance. Uh, Curtis Holland from Free Hill Blades has a really good Patreon. Uh, mm. He's pretty transparent with a lot of his processes, which I've always followed. Awesome. Um, yeah. He's a great maker. Yeah. Also in my journeyman class. Yep. And okay, so outside of the Patreon account, let's. Let's drop some names here real quick. Who you guys? Who, who's who's hot in your eyes? Who who's who's the guys you're looking up to, or that you think other people should be looking up to? Hmm. 
It's always changing for me. Silence on the radio waves. Wow. I, I was waiting for. I got to go with Salem and Morocco. Um, those those two guys are, you know, those those are the what I would aspire. Oh, and Kyle Royer and those guys. You know, as a master smith, Kyle's like the guy for me. Um, but as far as like makers, Morocco and he's Morocco's a really cool guy to hang out with too. I hung out with him at the Maker Camp, and he's just really, chill. really cool. Very See, chill. This year he was chill. I think he was a little more stressed last year, but uh, he's <laughs> he's chill this year. <laughs> yeah, I think Salem Straub is always breaking new ground. Um, another one that I've just inspired and of is Charlie Ellis, um, Charles Lionheart. He does, oh yeah, just incredible, incredible, incredible stuff. Um, well, you mentioned Josh Prince. He's uh, he's helped me with the stainless Damascus, which I'm just starting to touch on. So that's another whole beast to conquer. You guys, uh, know Seth, Seth, Seth. I was going to say one more. Seth Lopez. Oh yeah, uh, he's my neighbor at Blade. Yeah. yeah, he just he does some stunning work. Uh, yeah. Really inspiring to me. It's not a name I've, I'm familiar with, I don't think, actually. I'll have to check that one out. Um, check him out. Yeah. Do you guys know who Jakob Van Brunhorst is? No. JVB Knives. He's out of uh, southern Ontario. Um, if, if I'm going to say anybody in the Canadian scene is really, really blowing my socks off, it's Yako, man. That guy's work is absolutely mind blowing, dude. So good, so good, and really good. I'm on his Instagram now. Really all, nice. Yeah. All the hell he, he does it fast too. So fast. So he actually, he's, uh, I've seen his post, but I don't know why I'm not following him. But yeah, really good stuff. Great. Oh, I'm glad that I. Uh, Brought somebody to, guys, somebody to your guys' attention that you weren't familiar with. This is great. Well, I mean, somewhat familiar with, but not following. This is no, that's awesome. Sweet. A lot of keyholes. I'm, that's another. That's another one I'm about on, to start on as a keyhole. That's right. It's on my list. Yeah. yeah. Cool, man. James James Fleming. That's another who was in oh, your yeah. ABS class. Yeah. Who's doing good keyholes? Wasteland. Yeah. Wasteland yeah. Fourth, right? Yeah. Fucking rad shit yeah. there, dude. Very rad shit. He's we going for his list- master next year. Yeah, we could just list your whole ABS class, Will Stelter. Uh, you know, <laughs> you guys were stacked. Oh, yeah, there's a, there a lot of guys in there. <laughs> My buddy Brad Millman just picked himself up a power hammer, and he's, like, trying to figure out how he's going to get it moved into his backyard, and he posted it on the Canadian <laughs> Blacksmith. Don't drop it. And I said, whatever you do, do not <laughs> ask Stelter for help. <laughs> 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 that came up. I I I was I had drinks with Will um uh at um uh in Salt Lake City and uh, Blade West and that came up again and he he said he's still traumatized from that event. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Just a little bit. So I saw that video come up on on uh Reddit on a watch people die inside Reddit. And <laughs> It was so out of context because that's that has nothing to do with bladesmithing, but that video showed up on there. <laughs> it was so appropriate, like 
No kidding. And then there are people like, what, what is this? It's a machine falling over. But I was I was feeling it. Oh, man, you guys have no idea. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think the entire knife-making community had hurt feelings over that one. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I saw the video, and I was just... I, something inside me was just like shriveled up and was like, no, no, no. Well, it's a, it's a combination of the tool itself. And he, he is like everyone's little brother. Like, so we feel just horrifying for him. Well, and the whole <laughs> slow motion, um, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was the whole slow motion at like part of it that he saw it happening. And then <laughs> you can hear him in the video going, no, no. Been there, yeah, done there, that? I, you guys got a story similar to that? Ever done anything where it was like heart wrenching to, you know, with your, with your equipment or. Uh, I did something yesterday. Well, not quite that heart wrenching, but I, I have, you have any builds that are just like, I have a build that just, I can't, <laughs> I've been trying to do this Kumai Karambit build. I'm on attempt number three and I just fucked it up yesterday. And I, I, I don't get it. <laughs> like every time I try to do this, um, this build, I'm like, I looked away from the forge for like 30 seconds. I look back and there's copper leaking from every orifice of this blade and I was on the last heat. <laughs> I'm so mad. And it's it's wrought iron cladding, so it's garbage. I was so yeah. mad. Yeah. But you move on, right? Yeah. yeah. I've had I've had some that I put in the time on and then yeah. Got to a step where it's a critical failure, but uh and some that were embarrassing, where I was demonstrating something, and uh, the demonstration did not pan out. Uh, <laughs> so, but yeah, no, nothing huge. I, part of it's, I don't know, part of it's just my methodical process too. So I, I do a lot of like starts and stops where I go, okay, I've built it this far, and now I'm going to break it, so I understand what's happened up to this point. Um, that's just the control freak in me. Well, the idea of you having a scenario before where, you know, you're doing a demonstration and it didn't go as planned, it fucked up, it was a failure, everybody saw you make a failure, feels very similar to the way my dad's always portrayed his outlook on me is, ah, you're you're a failure, you'll do a great example of showing people how to fail. Oh, that's harsh. That's harsh. <laughs> no, you know what? I think that's a good analog. Back to where we were talking about earlier. It's just I'm transparent with my kids around my flaws. And same thing happened when I was trying to demonstrate this forging technique, and then I got it wrong. And this guy made a comment to me like, oh, you just you actually just need to forge, and it becomes what it wants to be in the soul of the steel. I'm like, no, uh, a skilled blacksmith tells the steel what it wants to be. Mm-hmm. And I failed in this instance, and uh, I'm going to be real about that. And that's the lesson that I'm teaching at this point. I had to pivot at that point and just kind of own that and go. Dude, totally. If I was, I was better at this piece, and now I'm going to go practice that. So next time I demonstrate it, I get it right. But every everybody walked away from that 
gaining something too, right? Right. right. They, yeah. you know, yeah. again, like my like my dad said, they they gained what not to do. <laughs> Success is a terrible teacher. <laughs> well, yeah. and you know what? It's kind of funny. I I didn't mean to bring this up, but just recently in the shop, dude, I literally. I was heartbroken, dude. I I was at a point on Saturday. I spent so Friday night. I was up pretty late. I had a friend come by that dropped some absolutely terrible news on me that just kind of fucked me up in the head a little bit. Maybe that's why Saturday went as rough as it did. But I was in the shop from probably about ten ten a.m. till six thirty in the morning. I think I was in the shop on Saturday. Like, like all day, all night. I got to a certain point where I was like, dude, this isn't working. You obviously don't know what you're doing. Maybe this is a, and I literally, I had to sit down for like about good half an hour, an hour and just like stare at my hands and be like, do you, do you, should you even be doing this? Is this, is this right? And Like I tried me I five different springs, dude. First one, I wound it the wrong direction. Simple failure. I, my mind wasn't in the right place. Okay, whatever. Big deal. Oh, oh no, big deal. Whatever. I wound it the wrong direction. Okay, time to make another one. Made another one. Partway through winding it, it snapped because I was rolling it. I, I tried rolling it and it let it cool off too much. And I was like, ah, it's still going. Nope. Snap. Oh, that was dumb. Should have saw that one coming. Let's do the third one. Third one. Oh yeah. Okay. This this is the spring. This is it. I done it. We're good. And so what it was is I had a, a drop saw band saw that I was trying to fix the spring on. It was spring tension. Throw it on the band saw. Not even close to enough spring tension. I'm just like, okay. Well, what the fuck? Maybe I need to like wind it around the coil once go to wind it around the coil freaking spring goes fl- half the spring goes flying across the room oh my god are you serious paw my face again okay pick your shit up dude time to make another one so i make another one okay same as last one it's good it's maybe a little bit more temper this time so it doesn't do that put more temper into it Go to freaking roll it. Snaps again. Motherfucker. Son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, I'd, throw shit. I'd be on Amazon buying a spring. <laughs> There's no way I would have made it. So funny enough, I started to go on Amazon. Princess Auto <laughs> is where the saw's from. Princess Auto is usually really good about being able to get you replacement parts and stuff. No, this saw is old dude it was manufactured in the 90s they stopped manufacturing it they went to a different style that spring that they used on that was specifically used on that one and they went to a different system for their new spring spring tension saws so can't even get that spring okay what do i do well maybe i need to change the way the saw works and i'll go to one of those hydraulic uh drops instead can't get a hydraulic drop couldn't find one anywhere don't know what to do oh fuck i got a bunch of gas struts on the shelf i ended up jimmy rigging the saw using two gas struts and some different fixtures it actually the saw runs better now than it did with the 
pro- <laughs> probably how it did with the the uh, spring tension. It probably runs better now with the gas struts. So in the long run, I'm happy. I'm trading that saw to my friend Jason, who happened to pick up a treadle hammer through a blacksmith shop that he got in cahoots with that was all derelict and not being used anymore. So he picked up he picked up a bunch of stuff from this blacksmith shop. Blacksmith shop. He's like, dude, I got this treadle hammer. Maybe you'd be interested. And I was like, well, I got this saw. Would you be interested? Let's trade. Hallelujah. I'm so pumped. So, yeah, failures. Did I learn anything? I learned that I can't make a spring. And I don't know if I'm going to bother trying to make another one ever again because that failure just destroyed me, dude. So maybe one day. But, yeah, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Yeah. I'll be looking at doing some folders in uh, probably the spring. So uh, I'll be having uh, I'll be having a lot of failures, I'm sure. Oh, man, I've been I've been eyeballing those too. It is a whole other world. And the one I'm going to try is probably one of the hardest ones. So Really? What are you doing? <laughs> probably an out the front. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> So yeah. say, that you're not, say that again? You're not wasting any time. Uh, and out the front knife. I, I've done a slip joint, but never... Uh... I was going to say, most people start with slip joints, go into a liner lock. No, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive in. Nice. <laughs> I, know, I have no idea what out the front means. That's because they're legal in Canada. <laughs> it's an auto where it's a button and it literally... I don't think those are legal here, are they? Illegal, yeah, they're illegal. They're illegal here. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's spring actuated both ways, out and in. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Very cool. Oh man, good luck to you on that, man. Very, very anxious to <laughs> yeah. see what that's going to end up turning up. It's Dennis Tyrell, man. He's going to blow us out of the water. Watch out, everybody. I know it'll be. <laughs> oh, I could, I could, I could fail five times before you guys see it, though. <laughs> well, uh, it might be the smarter thing is to to keep that to yourself and then you come out looking like the the hero right no that's not my style either share your failures <laughs> oh yeah there you go i think that's what i was gonna say you know you were i thought you were kind of earlier talking about with you know your struggles with your spring talking about thought you were gonna talk about imposter syndrome a little bit but which is something i think we all struggle with at different times but um I think Dennis does a really good job with that, showing his failures and what he you know worked through, and that's something I always look into because I've learned a lot from Dennis's videos and just in my making. And um, we tend to be reclusive. We're in our shops. We're alone. We spend a lot of time. You know, I listen to podcasts and I do my thing, and then then somebody asks me to teach them how to do it, and then I'm immediately thrust into this weird weird place where I experience imposter syndrome going, who am I to teach anybody anything? Mm-hmm. And uh, I just think that's something Dennis does really well. He has always done from day one going, Hey, I'm going to explore this. and I'm going to do it on camera. And I, I think everybody knows we don't see everything and there's probably a million starts and failures, but then you verbalize them and you talk through them and uh, we learn through that as much. So uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's a. Got to show the failures. So, I mean, yeah. you got to have something interesting to show at the end, but yeah, right. you got you got to talk about how the all, all the stumbles to get there. So, yeah. all right, boys. Well, it's been a 
Yeah. A great, great chat, but I'm going to have to bail. That's cool, buddy. Thank you very much for sitting down with us, Dennis. It's very awesome to have you a part of the podcast once again. And, uh, man, all the best to you. Look forward to seeing what you do, dude. It's been fun chatting with you guys. Brian and both of you, if you're ever in this area, you know you're always welcome. Come over to my shop. We'll make something fun. Should we shut this down with a Karukaku, bud? (laughs) I haven't heard that in a while. (laughs) Good day. Thanks, boys. Catch you later. All right. Take care. Oh, boy. That was a recording. Man, I was excited. Just a little bit, if you couldn't tell. I mean, seriously, getting to sit down with Brian Hindenkamp has been something hot on my list for a while now. And having Dennis Tyrell sit in as a co-host, dude, I I was a little excited. Just a little. It's just this podcast has been something so awesome. It's opened up the community to me so much. And I hope it's helped you as well as a listener Thank you so much for partaking in this podcast, you guys and girls. Like, oh, man, I can't say enough good things about the community. You guys really are awesome. Thank you so much once again. Please, if you like this podcast, hit me up in the DMs, Facebook, Instagram. Let's get you a sticker. Uh, Five bucks. Help support the podcast. It's something we do every season. I've got season two stickers available. Just shoot me a DM and we'll get that out to you as quick as I can here, guys. Thank you again so much, everybody. You're blowing my mind. You really are. Cheers. Oh, and have a good day, you hosers. (laughs) 